to Teach Them Up, the podcast about teaching and learning. Today, we are talking with social studies teacher at San Marin High School, Mike Spinrad. Mike, how you doing? I am doing very, very well, Nick. Thank you. Wow, double very. Yes. It must have been a good day. It was a good day. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I had uh, the kids uh, doing stuff, a project on their own, and they got into it. And I said, do you want to stop halfway through the class? They said, no, no, we want to continue doing this. Oh, man. So I guess it's always best when I interfere the least. Yeah. <laughs> and they're less, interested in what they're doing. Less interference, more learning is a great yes. sign. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad that you had a wonderful day. I had a terrible one. Well, yeah, um, they broke your microphone. They did break my microphone. <laughs> so hopefully this audio will work. Yep. We'll see uh, if it actually picks up and where we end up going with it. Good. All right. So before we jump in too much, can you give us a little bit of background on your educational pathway and what got you into teaching? Sure. Uh, teaching is the family profession for me. Uh, my uh, father uh, was a scientist, and as a scientist, as a professor, he would teach mostly graduate students, but occasionally undergraduates. And he would also occasionally give lectures for you to the public, and I would often go to those. I remember going as an adolescent, coming in there with all my swagger, and uh, <laughs> he putting me literally in my seat in about tenth of a second by saying, Mike, just sit over there. I mean, it's like, boom, he knew exactly how to deal with uh, reprobates like me. Uh -huh. And he was, uh, he was a, a real fun teacher, too. Uh, he would do all sorts of tricks. He'd take chalk and throw it behind his back and catch it, and he'd show slides. Back then, it was slides uh, from a uh, slide projector, one of those round uh -huh. carousel slide projectors of all sorts of interesting things that most people would find very engaging. So uh, a lot of, of, of what I do is from him. My sister is also a professor, and so I'm the black sheep. I, uh, I merely teach high school. Slumming but, it, slumming it down <laughs> in the K-12 world. But on the other hand, what we do is very different from what they do in, in the sense that uh, professors usually aren't really interested in pedagogy and interested in the best techniques of teaching. They're interested in their research, uh -huh. and we are the opposite. We're less interested in research, and we're only interested in research that's going to help us reach more kids and, and get more kids to learn. So it's a different emphasis, but that's really where I was coming from. I came in later in the profession. I already had a career as a, as a musician, and then also 10 years working in the engineering field before I decided, you know, I'd really like to do this, and so I've been here since uh, since my early 40s, and now I'm an old man, so I've been doing it for a while. Awesome. Um, and I would say, like, I agree. Traditionally, professors are much more research-oriented and less, like, pedagogically aware. It's a lot of direct instruction lecture format. Yes. But I would say I've been really encouraged with talking with some of my friends who are now getting into teaching at the university level um, with how much they actually care about good teaching practices and the research they're doing into like uh, teaching professorships around like, oh, how do we actually get college students to learn chemistry? Or how do we get them to write better papers or think more critically about film or literature? Um, so I think it's hopefully the universities are starting to see a bit of a shift as well, where it's not all content. There is an emphasis on some really good teaching strategies too. Yes. And, and I think the better teachers get rewarded by getting certain rewards and, and other pats on the back from administration, get uh, all sorts of 
you know, a teaching uh, award is a good thing mm-hmm. there as well. And then they also sometimes they uh, occasionally will have their compensation will be connected to the results of their teaching. If the kids are learning, especially, I think, uh, if they're teaching a lot of undergraduates, graduate school teaching. I don't think that's much of an issue because the classes are very small and it's a lot of one on one work. Right. Uh, so I think what we're talking mostly here is uh, the teaching of undergraduates. And I agree with you. I think it is getting better. Cool. Uh, okay, so today we are talking about the two controversial P's of teaching, uh, professionalism and politics. Oh. Oh, yeah. Um, and we were also hoping to talk a few about a few of your little, like, tips of the trade and sure. cool things that you do in class. Okay. So if we just kind of run through. The reason that I primarily wanted to talk to you is because I feel like you are a model of professionalism in the teaching profession. Well, that's very generous of you. I, I hope so. Yeah. I think, like, the way that you dress, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you conduct yourself with students... Um, there is like a level of silliness there. Yes. Um, you're not willing, not unwilling to be a real human being. Right. Um, but you also keep yourself to a reasonably high standard in terms of how you behave as a professional. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of background into like why that is yeah, sure. and why you feel like professionalism is important as a teacher? Some of it is accidental and some of it is purposeful. So the mm-hmm. accidental side is before I came into teaching. Uh, I was uh, working in the the, uh, the engineering field and in San Francisco, and it just turns out that if you are an engineer in San Francisco, when I was doing marketing for them, mm-hmm. I don't have an engineering background, but I have a psychology background and marketing definitely fit. So if you're in those offices, you have to dress up. You have to wear a, a coat and tie most of the time. Definitely, if you're seeing clients, you have to, you know, look like you belong as a businessman in San Francisco. So that got to be second nature for me. I can put my tie on in about 15 seconds at most. And Uh it's just that's the way to me going to work feel. So that was the accidental part. Uh, And the the purposeful part was like everyone else watching teachers growing up, uh, my father and and all the teachers I had, uh, especially in high school. And most of them, uh, I thought, looked pretty good, like they could fit uh, in a business meeting as well as uh, teaching me uh, a history class. It seemed to me that if you want to look like you're going places as a professional, you should dress like your, uh, like your boss. And so typically the, the assistant principals and principals wear a coat and tie because they are meeting important people, being parents and government officials and you know, maybe even just the superintendent. That's the way we expect them to look. And so I decided I was going to do the same thing and, and see what happens. And lo and behold, it's uh, made a big difference in a number of different ways. First way it's made a difference is the, the students respond to that. The students look at you and they go, well, this is somebody who takes what they're doing very seriously. Teaching is very important. Uh, what I do is very important. History, economics, government are very important subjects, and therefore I dress in relation to the importance of what I'm doing. If I was to wear uh, shorts and a t-shirt, to me it wouldn't feel like what I'm doing is, a, is as important. Now, if I'm playing with my rock and roll band, that's appropriate dress. Mm-hmm. It's you know, kind of like working out. I would not wear a tie going to the gym. But if I'm lecturing on something or giving, giving instructions for uh, a project, it makes sense for me to look like 
you know, I dress the same as I would in a boardroom, for example. It just, it adds some gravitas to the, to what I'm doing. So there's that part of it. Yeah, and, I, I agree with that. And I feel like I've gone through both of those zones. Um, I started teaching when I was 23 years old. And at first I would teach, uh, like I knew that I had to wear a button up shirt because I looked pretty young because I right. was pretty young. Right. Um, like the front office secretary called me kiddo. Uh, and <laughs> that I never happened to I me. Yeah, and I frequently got confused <laughs> for a student. So I knew that I had to wear like a button up shirt mm-hmm. um, so that I wasn't confused for a student. But I also was kind of feeling like, well, wearing uh, my shirt tucked in, that's not really like my vibe. Like I'm more of a uh, hang loose California kind of guy. Um, and so tucking in is not, not really my jam. Um, and then I realized, like, I watched some video of myself, and I saw myself enough times, uh, and I t- tried tucking my shirt in once or twice, and realized, like, oh my god, I actually behave better. Like, I teach better when I am dressed formally. Mm-hmm. Not, like, super formally. Mm-hmm. I am not a tie guy. You are a tie guy yes. pretty much every day. Yes. Um, I find with the kind of science that I'm teaching and I do some engineering work where we're using power saws and drills and things, a tie gets in the if way. If I had a tie with a power saw, I would probably be taken by the power saw, by the tie, and bad things would happen. It'd right. Be like a Batman movie. Yeah. So with things like dissections and physics experiments, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't wear a tie. But I do wear a button-up collared shirt pretty much every day, some mm-hmm. nice slacks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to play around a little bit and make the slacks fun. So I have like some brightly colored red slacks and blue slacks. Um, and I'll play around with colors and patterns. But I find that like if I dress up nicely, I feel better coming into school. Yeah. Like I feel more prepared. Yeah. And I feel like the uh, seriousness of doing teaching right is conveyed. I agree. I agree. Uh, So there's that, you know, that semi-conscious aspect of how do I behave when I'm dressed a certain way. I think it definitely lends itself to a little more formality. Uh It also lends itself to a little more distance between Mm. the kids. And I want to control the distance. So I feel it's much better for me to have greater distance and bring it in. Uh Uh-huh than it is for me to be too close and have to back up. So I'd much rather, it's like, all right, there's the adult, there's the teacher, that boundary is there, especially for young teachers should do that, in uh-huh. my opinion. For me, you know, I'm, I'm, it's just my way, and so I do it. But I like having that distance and be able to bring in the distance with goofy behavior, which I'm, you know, famous for, uh, taking my drumsticks out and just playing randomly on a desk for no reason, just because I can and Uh want to, uh, telling jokes, uh, asking about, uh, the kid's day or what they did on the weekend, all these things, which the way I look at is adding warmth to the classroom. So dressing very formally is, is going the opposite direction. It's, 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 it's a, a little colder, but I can add warmth purposefully when I want to, when I want to do that for certain tactical reasons in the classroom. And I think good teachers, whether they realize it or not, they're working on it either consciously or, or, or less than consciously, are either adding or taking away warmth as the room demands it, as the students demand it. Mm-hmm. And so, so part of me, this look is a purposeful look uh, to keep that balance of uh, have the level of warmth where I want to have and for 
my dress to have me a little more of a standoff level, and then I can approach the warmth as I wish by by interacting with the kids. Right. So you're not giving up on building positive relationships with students. You're just ensuring that they're of a positive professional nature. Right. Um, and so I think you have at, clear lines. Yeah. And I think like at my high school, as a teacher and not being here to be your friend. Right. Being here to be a mentor, to be a helper, um, to be a helping in guidance, but not necessarily like you should know absolutely everything about me. Right. Exactly. So I want there to be some distance, especially in high school, mm -hmm. because in high school we have kids that are not quite adults in many ways, but they have uh, many of the adult interests of uh, power Absolutely. and sexuality. And so, you know, the more formal I am, the more I am telling them it's like, well, you know, these, these, these issues exist, uh, but I'm not like you. I am keeping those issues out of the classroom. Keep that out possible. unless I want to bring it in in a certain controlled way. Right. So I'm going to be able to control those issues of power uh, in a way that I choose as opposed to them just naturally happening a certain way. I want wow. it to be consciously observed and acted upon, and right. not something that just happens because I'm trying to dress like you and be you know, exactly like you. Yeah, like falling into the trap of trying to be too cool. Right. Um, there is no way I can be too cool because there's <laughs> nothing that cool about me. I am old and, you know, I don't have any hair and I'm wearing a tie. So that's like the opposite of that. Right. And I think you don't want to be that teacher who's trying to be cool. Um, it would be excellent if the cool happens. Right. But it needs to happen in like a natural way, not in a, oh boy, Spinrad's really trying hard today. <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to work well yeah, if I no, were to do that. Nobody likes that teacher. Well, or, you know, that teacher could exist, but it's not going to be me because it's not my style. And a lot of what I do, you know, it's stuff I thought about. It's like, what works for me? Mm -hmm. So we have other teachers here that have other styles in dress, in mannerisms, in discipline in the classroom that work great for them, but mm -hmm. would not work for me uh, in a million years. Ones that are much more structured than I am and ones that are less structured than I am. And structure is the other uh, dichotomy I like to look at. It's, uh, you've got warmth and, and, uh, and, and coldness and you have another axis of, of amount of structure. And what these teachers do works great for them, but I've thought about it and go, I can't do that. It just, it's unnatural and takes too much effort and I don't know if I'd be successful. So there's lots think, of ways of doing it. I think that's a huge piece is finding your right balance of where you fit in that continuum. Because there's not a perfect answer. Right. I would agree. There are teachers on campus who come dressed really casually, uh, shorts, boat shoes, maybe a Hawaiian shirt, maybe right. a t-shirt. Right. Um, but it 100% works for them. Yeah. And some of it's because like you're just not messing around with that teacher. Right. Um, you know, we have teachers who were formerly army rangers or special forces, That's right. and it's just like, nah, I'm not going to mess right. with that teacher. They can dress multiple, any way multiple, they want. Multiple teachers. <laughs> so it's like, you know what? That's a serious person mm -hmm. and I'm not playing with that person and mm -hmm. great teacher. Right. Um, but I think you have to kind of find where is your space and their space is feeling comfortable in the clothes that they're wearing and being able to convey to students the really cool information that they're doing. Um, and our space is finding a way of doing that in a more formalized dressing 
format. Right. So I don't have the military background, so that doesn't ooze out of me mm -hmm. in the way I teach like it would with someone who has a serious military background. They could be wearing anything they want and, and it's going to work. So, so yeah, so I would say, I mean, my advice to a beginning teacher would to be to dress very formally at the start and then see how that works for you mm -hmm. and try it out. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, then try something else. Right. There is a degree of like, it has to feel natural for yes. you. Yes. Um, if when I wear a tie, it doesn't feel natural for me. Um, right. So and I probably have, wear one once a year when the you see the parents. Are you even wearing one then? Nope. Okay. I don't wear a tie for back to school night. Uh -huh. Um I will wear them for my students' uh, special presentation nights. Oh, okay. So when I ask, like, we're doing a um, physics of sports film festival next week, and so we do, like, a black or a red carpet, black tie optional event. Like, we treat it like it's the Oscars. Mm -hmm. um, and then we present their films at this film festival. And for that one, I will go full black suit, black tie, white nice. shirt, like, tuxedo style. Nice. Very good. Um, and we'll do red carpet interviews, and we'll have the paparazzi out. Yeah, you're uh, playing the role. A couple so student, student journalism, journalists taking photos. Uh -huh. um, so that'll be cool. But for them, and I will wear a tie for weddings um, mm -hmm. in my personal life. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I, I do not wear a tie. And I do have, like, some other weird things. Um, like, I always wear my collar up. Um, I always pop my collar and that's my way of just being like, okay, I'm a little bit different. I'm going to have some personality, but I'm also always going to be wearing a collar. Right. Um, and the collar up is also like a cultural piece for me. My family's from New Zealand, uh, grew up on farms. And what's the point of a collar if it's always going to be down? The collar provides you with sun protection. There you go. Um, so collar up actually does something for you. That's true. That's yeah. probably why they made one to begin with. Right. So growing up in New Zealand with less UV protection, with that big hole in the ozone layer, uh, especially when I was growing up, and then, you know, shifting forward, being outside on a farm, the collar can actually provide some protection. So I use it as kind of like, this is a thing that I always that's, do. That's your culture. And I didn't know that. It's a cultural piece. That's interesting. And I think it doesn't look too informal. No, but um, the only thing is like when I first met you, I said, oh, by the way, your collar's up. I get that a lot, <laughs> especially uh, for school pictures. Yeah. The photographer always but wants to help fix it for me. Um, <laughs> they yeah. think, where was your wife this morning? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, you screwed it up again. Um, cool. So I think the dressing is certainly a level of professionalism, but why do you feel like it's important to convey that professionalism to your students, just around like how you model the teaching profession? So I think they need to know one way or another, I can tell them or I can just act it and they can feel it, that what I do is very important. Mm -hmm. And if what I do is very important, what they're doing is very important. Yep. Very serious and I want them to be successful. So if they get the message that what I do is as important as what I was doing in the business world or, or elsewhere. Or then, more so. Or more so. Uh, and I think this is one of the most important professions that we have. Uh -huh. So if it's that important, then I should dress, I believe, to reflect that importance or at least give them the impression somehow that it's very important. Absolutely. Um, and as we mentioned, I think there's like a bit of a sliding scale there, depending on the age of students that you're working with. Um, if you're doing kindergarten, oh, and yeah. you're down on your knees. No, no, I would on, not wear a tie carpet, if I was teaching then, kindergarten. You know, movable pants right. are helpful. Yes. Um, like I wouldn't suggest high heels in kindergarten every day. Mm -hmm. um, or although if I taught PE here. Right. 
I'm running around with the kids and, and doing stuff. No, then it's not 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 right. But uh, I would say at the eh, seventh grade and up, teaching history like I do, it makes sense for me. Yeah. To uh, to try to convey that message that this is very important material. Uh, I love it and uh, I live it. And you know, you look at other people that do very important things like. President of the United States, this one or the last one, they wore ties all the time, so and do. So what they do is important, what I do is important. What a beautiful transition. Speaking <laughs> of the President of the United States. Oh, yes. Um, so the other piece is you teach economics and government. Yes. Um, and so talking politics, I would imagine, is one of the hazards of that job. The third rail of the, history. The third rail of history. Um, yeah. So when we're talking about economic policy, when we're talking about government, Obviously, political issues are going to come up a lot, mm -hmm. um, and I know that uh, you have your own political views, oh, yeah. as I have mine. Well, um, I don't think people go into this profession of being a social studies teacher that don't have political views. Right. It doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> science, maybe, because eh, I don't care about that stuff that much, though most people here in science do have very strong political views, we I've do. noticed. Yep. But, you know, uh, history and, and economics, oh my goodness, of course you're going to have a very strong political view. That's what, yeah. that, what's, that's what turns you on. I mean, when you came in the room, I was reading, you know, stuff about what was happening in the world. I mean, that's what we do. Yeah, I can't I'm imagine. Oh, yeah, I'm the government teacher, but I'm not really a big voter. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure if I believe in yeah. this whole uh, democratic process yeah. here. Or you may strongly not believe in the democratic process. You believe in some process. There Maybe you go. you believe in, you know, dictatorships, communism, what have you. But I bet you believe in something. Fair. And so, so yeah, so the, the, the guidelines that we are given by both uh, the Nevada Unified School District and the state of California is that you have to give all the perspectives. Yeah. And so that's my main job is to give all the perspectives. And what I tell the kids beforehand, they're usually pretty okay with that, is I'm going to make fun of everybody. So I'm going to make fun of Trump. I'm going to make fun of the Democrats. I'm going to make fun of the Keynesians. I'm going to make fun of the uh, uh, supply side theorists. Everybody is going to be made fun of by me and everybody's going to be presented by me. So if I do that, I think I am probably doing a good job. What I'm obviously not supposed to be doing is uh, trying to force a certain viewpoint uh, down the throats of the students. Right. And I think that's a really tricky line to walk. Right. Um, it's one that I absolutely believe in. Um, I have my own very strong uh, political views. And every once in a while, students will ask about them. Mm -hmm. um, teaching science, it's often more about like the balance between science and religion. Oh, that's um, a fun one. And, yeah, and I am both a scientist and a religious person, right? Or as, a spiritual person. As am I. There you go. Um, <laughs> I sit on the board for uh, Episcopal summer camp. Nice. Um, I don't attend church very regularly, um, but it is a meaningful part of my life. Right. Uh, and I'm a huge believer in scientific theory and practice. Right. And I believe that those two things work really nicely hand in hand together. Um, that faith and science can complement one another and not work in opposition. And I think if you read most of the faith-based texts carefully, um, they would agree with that. I, I agree with what you said. Now, um, as far as expressing that on campus, though, uh, that would be more difficult to, to, uh, to talk about that at all. I right. mean, if kids ask me my religion, I, of course, will tell them all that stuff. Uh, but for the most part, I don't talk about religion. I talk about 
religion and how the Supreme Court has uh, ruled, upon, ruled upon different aspects of religious expression in school. So that uh, is pretty much their expectation with me. Uh, I don't have the lovely situation of having to deal with a question of, so Spinrad, do you think evolution or faith is correct? All right, I think I, I, I do. probably... You get that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, I don't And I, I do think evolution and faith is correct. So you're able to um, play with it by in, saying that in a, in they work together. Class, we're going to focus on the scientific evidence-based theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my faith strongly supports that. All right. Well, that's good. So that works out nicely. It does. Um, so since you are teaching politics mm -hmm. and economics, mm -hmm. um, how much political discourse comes into class? It rarely comes in, interestingly enough. Really? I don't think that is because I am suppressing it in any way. I think the kids are less interested in talking about, let's say, the uh, pros and cons of Trump administration policy, and much more interested in talking about things such as gay rights, mm -hmm. uh, racism yep. in life. And those are really the hot button issues. Okay. To give you an example, one time I thought, all right, we're going to have a lot of fun here. We're going to uh, let uh, the students express themselves on how much racism affects their lives in a day to day level uh -huh. in their world. And that discussion it was in psychology class, interestingly, it was not in a government class right. or a history class, it was a psychology class. That discussion got out of hand in a nanosecond really i will never do it again oh it was uh, and then it after you know after i'm putting dousing the flames then it continued later online oh dear so much that i had to talk to an administrator the next day uh -huh. it got way out of hand so what i learned from that is there are certain issues it's probably better not to bring up and that's mm -hmm. one of them and there's some if i if i recall correctly there's actually some evidence in the literature uh, that also says that if you some things you bring up, it does not help in the mm. sense that it doesn't lower the tensions. Uh -huh. It just makes things worse. It, only increases uh, it, just, it just increases conflict. So it's not worth purposely bringing up, gee, tell me how we have a racist society or tell me how we don't have a racist society. Uh -huh. uh, so I just don't do that. I learned from, from experience not to do that. As far as my own... Now, would, you, would you say that's different if it's brought up in context with like a student bringing it up. That was how it got out of That was hand. how it, when they're talking about their personal experience, it is very, very heated because it's their right. own experience. Yeah, see, because I would argue that like, it's really important to let students have those conversations. Yes. And that there is gonna be a level of discomfort yes. in those conversations. But those are important issues that are meaningful to our students' lives. And um, trying to find the way of you know, managing those conversations is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and not being somebody who teaches in the social sciences, I have little experience with that. Uh, but it also feels like a necessary piece of helping them kind of find the way of expressing themselves around those challenging pieces. I think it could probably be done differently than the way I did it, which was a, a big class discussion. I think if mm. it was done in small groups uh -huh. with an adult present to keep things from going out of hand, it might be more successful. 
but the way I did it, which is a, a full class discussion, it uh-huh. very quickly descended into chaos, and I would not recommend it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you definitely have to set up some ground rules. Well, the ground rules, ways, rules were there. I think it was listening yeah, to one another. Yeah, it was just it was it's very difficult to do because if you the bigger the group, the more they're going to go into sides, and it becomes a you versus us thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think in a small group, uh, it would ha- be more successful, yeah. uh, possibly. Interesting. Uh, before I went into teaching, I was doing uh, some therapy as a as a being trained in that, and I did a lot of group therapy with adolescents. Uh-huh. And uh, the great thing about doing groups with with adolescents is it gives them an opportunity to look at themselves. It's a real good mirror for them Mm -hmm. that they're not going to get with other types of conversations because they have their own peers in front of them. So that part of it's good. On the other hand, the stakes are very high. You do not want to look foolish or be wrong in front of your peers. Uh So it just ramps up the heat on anything if it's a close to home subject like this is yeah, yeah. much higher. And so if I were to do something like that again, I would probably do it in a group of no more than maybe five or six people. Wow. I'd keep it very small in that way. It's uh-huh. less likely that things are going to uh, uh, get where uh, it's uh, I, I win, I lose type right. of situation. Right. You start getting into that winner loser yeah, piece and, and then you have to protect your pride right and not allow somebody else to win and then it goes down which is and they're similar, not listening to each other right similar to like a classroom management piece yeah which is like don't start a fight with a kid right don't start a public fight with a kid right especially a teenage boy that's right because even he, if you win you lose he can't let you win <laughs> right and you are in a position of power already right so you don't need to prove anything right you're only putting him in a position to have to fight back against mm-hmm. you or to feel like he's losing right and so if there's something where i have to get a kid to do something and they're being oppositional i always take him outside i knew, never want to be in front of the group right have a and, one-on-one chat and about i it. almost always do much better that way so this going back to the discussion since this was a big group and talking about racism, I found that it descended pretty quickly into uh-huh. where I didn't want it to go. Yeah. Uh, there has never been anything else that I felt that happened with. So if I ask them, for example, I'll, I'll, uh, when we start talking about political ideology and allegiance, and I'll have them take uh, some different tests that show, all right, so if you answer these questions this way, you are a liberal Democrat from these way you're a conservative republic what, what have you and there's other charts that have uh four quadrants that are even more sophisticated than that yeah, yeah, yeah. when i do that they're like yeah they're fine with it i am this according to you know to this uh-huh. uh uh way of looking at it so i think that sort of thing is fine and and when they ask me where i am i have the choice of whether i want to self-disclose or not and usually the answer is no Usually I'll say, I'll tell you after I gra- after you graduate, and by then they don't care anymore. <laughs> I also tell them, I'll tell them all the dirty jokes that I was never going to tell them after you graduate. I'm not going to tell you while you're a student of mine. And they, thank goodness they forget about that never, too. Never come <laughs> so, so you don't mention your own political beliefs in class? No, they can probably figure it out because, you know, for some of them, you know, I've talked to their parents about different things or what have you. And, and I'm sure it, it comes out by the way I approach certain things, but 
I don't I mean, say this is what I believe and I think it's right. I think that not only goes against what the state and the district wants me to do, I think it's bad teaching. Uh-huh. For one thing, I'm not going to get any friends that way. I mean, in, in fact, I should use reverse psychology. If I really want to somehow get students to think my way, I should tell them that I'm the opposite because then they'll, <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll oppose me. They'll right? rebel against your yeah, system. And, they'll rebel and against my system. I should tell them I'm on you know, this and then they'll go there. No, but no, that's not what we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is make sure they know the argument. So let's take something that we would think would be pretty hot, let's say like Roe v. Wade. Here are the arguments that the justices used to oppose the dissents on Roe v. Wade, and here are the arguments, uh, the concurrent arguments and the the argument by uh, the winning side on that Supreme Court decision. And so these are the main arguments, here's what it's about, it's about privacy, and so, you know, they can do that. Now, one of the more effective things I've done as far as political expression is I say, all right, I want to take you to something. Let's take the abortion one again. I want you to figure out where you are on this. Are you strongly for a woman's right right to choose? Are you strongly for uh, your pro-life person strongly? Or you're somewhere in the middle. So they figure that out. Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, I want you to find someone who is the opposite of you, talk to that person, and then tell me later what your colleague's position was. Mm. So they are not getting personally into it because they are going to uh, expound on what they're the opposite of their own view. Uh-huh. And so that, that way they have to at least know what it is. Right. And I find that always lowers the tension if they're able to at least tell me what does the other side think. Hmm. Well, the other side might be stupid or crazy, but this is what they think. Right. So at least they know it. And then it takes a lot of the Lot of the emotional part out of the equation. Yeah, and I think the way that you've structured that is it's small group, like you were talking about, mm-hmm. and it involves a lot of like listening and taking of evidence. Right. Um, and then if you're talking one on one with another person, it's a lot more difficult to really dislike that person. Right. Yeah. Than in front of a big group. Right. Where you have like a winner loser type scenario. Right. So, and also. They're just when they're saying on the other person's side, they're not agreeing with it. They're just saying, well, you know, this is what so and so believes. Person believes. Yeah, so it's a little more scientific about it. Nice. So that works. Uh, as far as self-disclosure in general, I think some self-disclosure is useful because it warms up the room. Uh huh. So if I want to warm up the room, I'll tell them. And I don't have to tell them anything very important. I'll tell them what my cat did last night. I know that there's my a cat always does something. Mr. Spinrad's cat. <laughs> Mr. Spinrad's cat is always doing something. Sometimes I make it up. Sometimes it is something that happened a day or two before. And just to be uh, clear, Mr. Spinrad's cat's name is, is Mr. Spinrad's cat. Mr. Spinrad's cat. <laughs> Come so. here, Mr. Spinrad's cat. I got a gravy for you, Mr. Spinrad's cat. <laughs> so they love that, right? So, you know, if they ever give me a chance to speak at graduation, Mr. Spinrad's cat will be there for sure. Nice. That's like the old joke. And, and, and jokes, re- reoccurring jokes are definitely another way of warming up the class. Like, what's Spinrad going to talk about today? Probably his cat will be on the exam. Uh-huh. You know, it'll be a throwaway question. What's the name of his cat? Mr. Spinrad's cat is the answer. So, uh, but okay. you, you choose what you want to self-disclose. So sometimes I'll self-disclose that uh, I was divorced. And I'll do that purposely because I know that many of my students are, are in families that that has something that they, they're dealing with. Uh-huh. Uh, or I'll, you know, make jokes about divorce and about, you know, why lawyers are so expensive and this sort of thing. And all this, I think, is for the most part fun. I try to avoid things that are going to upset people. Uh, 
a lot of it is at my expense. Mm-hmm. Self-depreciating humor is one of my favorites. You know, how ugly I am, how dumb I am, about how my cat takes advantage of me, whatever. <laughs> uh, and that usually goes over pretty well. It's hard to, you know, dislike someone who has a low opinion of himself. Right. I'm teasing about that. But, but and I, 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 I try to make it fun by trying to find a balance of how much I'm going to self-disclose. Nice. But again, you can self-disclose about anything. It doesn't have to be real. And you can lie. I mean, how right. are you going to know? Fact. <laughs> um, so on that note, uh, since we are off clock, are you willing to self-disclose some of your uh, political leanings? Sure. Okay. So um, my understanding is that you are one of the more conservative members of our staff. That is uh, correct. And in Marin County, in the Bay Area. And I'm, I'm a, a reactionary is, in Marin County, in the that Bay is Area. A, that is a reasonably unusual uh, piece. Yes. So like, uh, I'll tell you why, because people occasionally ask me. Okay. And what happened is I was raised a liberal Democrat, like every you know Jewish intellectual is in America, or almost everyone. And uh, I went to college, and I took some classes and I, and, uh, in political science, and one of the classes I thought was just a, a really uh, amazing class was by this professor, uh, Professor Muir, M-U-I-R, and it turns out that he had worked for Ronald Reagan, so I already disliked him because uh, he worked you know, for the bad guys, but it's uh-huh. like, all right, I'll listen to what he has to say, and he was very clever. He made us read things uh, that uh, really challenged our belief system, and one of them was this one, uh, I can't remember who it was, but uh, social scientist talking about how a meritocracy was a bad thing. It's got me thinking, meritocracy is a bad thing? You know, I think a meritocracy is a good thing. And so Professor Mirror showed me, you know, things like that. And I really got to start to challenge my belief system. And then as I got more interested in economics, I started reading uh, some of the more conservative ec- uh, economists, uh, like Friedman and some of the supply siders, and it just resonated with me. I think politics is somewhat like a religion mm-hmm. in the sense that things resonate with you and other things don't resonate you. And so I started to change the way I was thinking about politics and what I thought was best for society. And so by the time I was in my late 20s, I started to vote Republican. And when my family found out, there was hell to pay. <laughs> <laughs> And still, when I go to any family event, like I just went to one last weekend, it was like, so they always, you know, talk to my significant other. What's it like living with a Republican? You know, it's like I'm an axe murderer or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, it's not like I haven't taken my share of grief because of it, but that's why. It's just I had a, a uh, one of those religious moments, I guess you could say, in my late 20s when I decided, no, this side really makes more sense to me than what I used to believe. Uh-huh. And so that's why. So I try to be good-natured and funny about it. When I argue politics with people, I try for it not to be personal. I'll just talk about the issues. This is why I say this, and I think your your evidence is wrong, and I think mine's right. But I try not to get it to be ad hominem attacks because then it's no fun, and we're not you know getting anything done. Right. American uh, system is is meant to be a system where people are disagreeing. That's why we have it set up the way it is. And and uh, uh, it doesn't work very well when everyone is all on the same page. As one of my professors told me, a bird has two wings to fly, not one. So we really kind of need each other on the right and left. Needs a balance. Needs a balance. 
Yeah, and I will say that's one of the things that I really appreciate in talking with you um, is that we do not share similar political beliefs. I'm sure that's true. Um, I would put myself probably in the wildly liberal camp. Yes. Um, probably further left than you are right. Uh, but I will say it's really pleasant having conversations with you and right. being able to like talk through like what are these policies actually meaning or what's the background assumption around some of these political positions and right. how might that influence things going forwards and what is the purpose behind them. Um, I would also say that like you are somebody who doesn't allow yourself to be uh, tunneled by your um, specific political belief. So you are a conservative, but also a member of our equity team. Yes. So you're a conservative, uh, historically Republican voter who also believes in educational equity. I believe that everybody, whatever their background, race, nationality, has a right to an excellent education and that teachers need to do whatever it takes to get that to happen. So that's, I think we're on the same page there. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, the more we talk about this stuff, the more we learn from each other. Sometimes I change my mind. Mm -hmm. Like I was originally uh, a uh, climate change denier, but then I looked more and more at the evidence that was pointed out to me. It's like, no, I'm wrong. This is definitely happening. This is man-made stuff that's happening. Now, where we probably would disagree is what should be done. Right. But as far as the evidence, the evidence is the evidence. You know, what's right is right. Right. And I think that is a fair place to disagree. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, you can't really argue with the largely factual evidence. Right. Piece, but whether it is worth taking action to slow down climate change or whether, you know, whether we should have a carbon tax or. Right. What's uh, the best way of doing it? Trade, carbon tr credit trade or whatever. Um, that, I think, is very worth discussion. Sure. The policy side. Yeah. Um, as long as you can agree that, like, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a thing that's happening. And burning fossil fuels probably contributed to it, at least in part. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's getting to a reasonable space where then you can start thinking about, like, okay, what's the appropriate next step? Right. Uh, instead of arguing about the root of the thing, which is largely pretty much set. Right. So I agree with people that say we should reinvigorate nuclear. I can't, I'm saying it like George Bush, nuclear power. Uh-huh. Uh, I would Because I think the too. third, uh, what's it called, the third level, third state, what, there, what it is now is, is pretty good. I agree. And doesn't have the safety problems. And yep. of course, you know, is great as far as carbon goes. Yeah. And in terms of danger to humans, Not uh, so much. when a nuclear plant goes bad, it does go real bad. But in the history of nuclear, we've had, you know, very few human deaths. Well, from, from this, this, this latest level, there's been none. All right. the stuff that's been bad has been earlier But even, even the meltdowns, uh, when the tsunami hit Japan, right. and they had the meltdown there, yeah. that led to a grand total of three human deaths, I believe. Right. Uh, coal, with air pollution and yeah. coal mining and the black lung stuff, uh, that's leading to thousands of well, deaths just, yeah, the general pollution, you know, it's hard to measure probably, but the increased asthma and everything else, I'm sure, leads to a lot more suffering. Yeah. So I would, I would agree. I think nuclear is a pretty clean power source. Yeah, and who knows? We're going to probably come up with all sorts of gadgetry that can suck carbon out of the air someday. Uh -huh. I'm confident. I'm not a scientist. You know much more about it than I, I do. But I'm confident that sort of thing. And then it's just a question more of my field of funding of how much do we want to fund for some of these solutions. Right. Because when we take money from one place, it can't be spent in another place. So we have to figure out 
what makes the most sense as far as marginal benefit and marginal costs there oh, and becomes a social real, studies now problem. Now we're really getting into economics. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So, cool. so I do think, you find it challenging being on a more conservative side on a very liberal campus? Or I shouldn't say a very liberal campus because we certainly have a good portion of conservative students. Um, but in a county and an area, like when students ask me my political beliefs, my policy is that I don't want to tell them what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell them like, well, I am a public school teacher in Marin County in the Bay Area. <laughs> I grew up in Oakland. I played ultimate Frisbee in college. I've already got I, you marked. Yeah. I teach science uh, with some environmental science. Right. Like you can probably guess right. what my political beliefs are. That's right. That's right. So I won't tell them what they are. But you can make some assumptions, right. and you're probably going to be right. Probably going to be right. So uh, I've seen in the 17 years at San Marin, I asked the question. I always ask this question. Uh, I ask two questions. The first one I ask is, how many of you have been to church mm. in the last month, just okay. one time last month? And it would be about eh, half the class when I first started here 17 uh-huh. years ago. And now it'll be at most a third of the class. Okay. So you're seeing church uh, attendances declining yep. by my very flawed sample size. Yeah. Uh, and I ask, you know, how many of you consider, especially after I do the test yeah. and see, well, well I, I am a blank. So how mentioned. many of you are some sort of liberal, not so more centrist or far, far left? Uh-huh. And uh, again, it was about 50-50 liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat when I first started here, uh-huh. and now it's like 90%. Wow. That's much higher. There's hardly any Republicans. The Republicans that are here tend to be very loud and uh-huh. demonstrative, but there aren't nearly as many of them. Yeah. And I think the faculty reflects that too. There's a few you know, conservative Republicans in the faculty, but for the most part, not. And I've learned to live with that, to answer your question. I mean, I've grown up and been in the Bay Area all my life and it's like all right so no one's going to agree with me on my politics it's okay i think mm-hmm. as long as i am nice I agree. Yep. then that's fine besides it gives them someone someone to bang against I mean, if you just <laughs> hear any people agree with you all the time where are you gonna get out of that so uh, so it makes it a little more interesting but you are nice spinner. i try yeah. you know i and one thing you know for example if i get in a facebook you know uh, political thing, which I, oh, mistake you know, number one, I, I do that, which is, you know, everyone keeps telling me, why are you wasting your time? I can't help myself. But when I do that, I always make sure when I'm really angry to not write, write yeah. only after you've cooled down and can write only about the facts. Because uh-huh. if you're, someone's insulting you or whatever, you're going to, you're not going to react well. So react exactly the opposite of certain public officials uh-huh. react <laughs> <laughs> and keep it only to you know, the facts you're dealing with. I think that if people do that, it usually works out much better, and then everyone learns from each other, and that's, that's what we want in our system. It is, especially in an educational system. Yes. Yeah. So that's how, it's just, it's just, you know, that's how it is for me, and I've been able to, for the most part, deal with it. it it's, what's interesting is about the only time, there's been only probably in all my years of uh, student teaching and teaching, I could probably count on one hand, times kids got mad at me for certain political things and sometimes it wasn't because I acted fast enough. So for example, one time a kid said a bunch of uh, uh, anti a certain religion slurs and I was just mm. so shocked I didn't really say anything and then a uh-huh. kid came up later and said, why didn't you do something? That kid was right. Yeah. 
right? I was, it was, I was a student teacher. I really was kind of shocked, didn't really know what to do. That is one of the hardest things yeah. is reacting fast enough Well, when you are totally shocked. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember when I was student teaching, I had an incident where uh, it was before the bell had even rung, like during passing period. A boy was already sitting at his desk. Girl walked in and just immediately started slugging Oh, my him, goodness. Just like throwing punches to mm-hmm. this kid sitting down. Um, and he just kind of like uh-huh. covered. Uh-huh. He, he tried to hide from the punches. But I just stood there. Yeah, and you're like, like frozen. What do I do? Of, inside of my head, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Um, and I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and thank God another teacher was there. And she came in and grabbed the girl and hauled her out mm-hmm. uh, and then took the boy as well and walked them both down to the office. Perfect. But it was just like, I, like it was so shocking. Right. It was like, this is not supposed to happen. I don't know what to do. Uh, and now, now we've I seen hope, everything. I hope I will be quicker to intervene. <laughs> yeah. But your first reaction is just like, whoa, this is not yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as a teacher, your emotions are good because they tell you what's going on. And once you have training or figure that out for yourself, then you kind of know what to do. It's like, if I'm feeling super angry at a student, for example, what's that mean? Well, it means that the kid's probably defying me in some way. All right. So now I can put it into the cognitive part of my brain. What's going on? Why is the kid acting this way? And what should I do? Mm -hmm. Probably shouldn't deal with it anymore in the classroom. I probably should take the kid outside, for example. Or if I'm feeling very frustrated, what's that mean? Well, it means that class isn't getting any work done. They're screwing around. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. All right. What's, is that a problem on my lesson plan? Mm -hmm. Are kids off task for another reason? Is it just a bad day? Is it a Friday afternoon? What's happening? And then adjust accordingly. So listening to our emotions, whether it's, you know, a freeze up because they said some slur or because there's a fight going on. All right. Why do I freeze up? Because it's like, I don't know what to do. Well, I don't know what I've never had experience with this before. Well, now I've gone through it in my, on the drive home. When this happens, I do this. Uh I figured it out. Right. And, and, great thing about experience is now we've hit all those emotions. We've hit probably most of the things that are going to happen as a, as a high school teacher by now, whether it's drugs in the classroom or a fight or, or our kids saying crazy stuff, uh, that we have now in our tool belt something to do on each of those scenarios. And I think one thing that it would be nice to teaching schools to do if they don't already, and I don't think they do, is to say, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. What are you going to do when these things happen? Mm-hmm. And so kind of give them an inoculation of, it's of So of much that. of it, like the fun part and the challenging part of teaching is you're solving pro- different problems yeah. every day. Yeah. And you don't know what those problems are going to be. That's right. And there's a degree of that that's really challenging. Yeah. But there's also a degree of that that's like makes it interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's euphoric too when you yeah. like something happens and you just nail it. Or if you just get a real good day because your lesson plan was great and the kids did exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Those are fantastic days. And another piece that I you kind of mentioned is like paying attention to your emotions. Yes. I also find that it can be really effective to share your emotions with the class mm. in a totally non-judgmental way. Mm-hmm. But I will often in some of my afternoon classes, like pre-warn the kids. Okay, so full disclosure, I am very cranky today. Mm-hmm. And I don't exactly know why I'm really cranky, mm-hmm. but I am just on one right now. Mm-hmm. So tread lightly. <laughs> like if, <laughs> That's if, good. You are, if you are choosing your spots, yeah. today is not the day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of like, assuming you have a positive relationship with the class, yeah, if you have a negative that. relationship then with they'll the class, mess with you more. then they're like, all right, poke time. <laughs> yeah. But if you have yeah. a positive relationship with those students, right. we all know 
people have up days and down days, mm -hmm. and we know what it's like when you're just like, I'm not feeling it today. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like it's fair of me to say, look, you don't need to know what happened or maybe nothing happened, but just be forewarned that today I am not happy-go-lucky, let's play around. Yeah, and on that, that, that also you can pull in some of your chips when you need to, uh -huh. conversations such as, you know, I'm not feeling that you guys are doing what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, you get it pretty nice with me. Uh, I've always done things you liked. I've written your letters of recommendation. I've uh, given you some pretty fun lesson plans. We just did something fun last week with that Senate simulation. So I'm wondering if uh, if you can help me out here and, and work on this together with me. So, you know, I can kind of pull the chips towards me once in uh -huh. a while, all those chips I've been throwing out during the year, sometimes I can take some back, if, like you said, if I have a good relationship and they know that I have done things for them. Right. Yeah. Like this may not be the most engaging lesson. Yeah. Uh, it's the best that I could come up with. Help me out. Right. Do your part. Right. And the older done the my kids part, are, the more part. I think we can do that kind of a Yes. I don't think that's going to work with freshmen. I think it'll work very well often with seniors. Right. Because they look at us a little more as human beings and not just these heads that talk. The Charlie Brown. Exactly. Yeah. Set of legs. And right. That's about that, it. you know, don't have lives and somehow just kind of live somewhere in this vicinity and reappear at 730 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I think my, my freshmen are pretty good at understanding that I'm a real human being. Um, okay, so in our last little section, uh, what kind of big tips, tricks, what are some of the fun things in uh, your classroom? Oh, all right. Well, I love drama. Okay. And uh, I probably... Like teenage in... girl drama? No, no, no. I love <laughs> creating the drama, <laughs> not reacting to it. Creating the drama. So I like, I haven't done a whole lot with government. Okay. But with history, it just tends to. I love writing skits. Okay. So I will put, if it's something where there's a lot of characters, let's say it would, would be, for AP US history, let's say antebellum United States, so pre-Civil War United States, there's certain characters they have to know. And I'll put them all together in a bar or something of that nature, or uh -huh. the Senate if I want to be very formal, usually a bar or a, or a cafe or something where they can talk to each other and so that way the kids learn where all these people stand on certain issues or I'll have them do something. And different students play, and different the, students play the parts. Now, if they're not going to do it, I will play all the parts, okay. which is also very <laughs> amusing to them. They like that probably even more. But sometimes I'll have them play it. And then I have questions afterwards. Why did this person say this? Why did this person do that? So they're doing the history, but I think it's in a way that's a little more fun to them. That's, yeah, that's a, cool. That you, never fails. Do you write a script for that? Yes. Or do the kids write No, I write, I write the script. Okay. Have you tried it where the kids write their scripts? I, I, I have. Like, you're Thomas Jefferson. Usually, yeah. You believe in. Prep yourself up. Yeah, I mean, that's something to try a little more. I haven't had as much uh, luck with that, uh -huh. uh, but definitely when I write the scripts, they usually like it a lot. Nice. So that's, that's one thing to do. Uh, with them that usually works well. I like, it's kind of in a similar way, uh, doing simulations. So I did in government class a Senate simulation where I'm President Spinrad, and I am the best LBJ imitation ever okay. of being President Spinrad. So I bully them, 
I lie to them. I promise them things I'm not going to do. I do all the things that LBJ would do. When I say bully, it's just like, you're going to do this for me. I need you to do this. I, I wouldn't actually touch a kid or yeah, yeah, yeah. put my nose one inch from the face like LBJ would do. But, was you LBJ know, not a good dude? he was very, very bad, but he was the really? best president ever. Really? Yes. Huh. Because he got things done. He Can knew both how of those to be true? Yes, and they are. Interesting. Yes. So I highly recommend reading books on him. I can tell you later which ones I recommend. Okay. But I become LBJ. I love it. I have a great time. And we have a Senate where my party is basically a fascist party. Okay. I take Spinrad, and even Spinrad doesn't believe these things that I will get for myself. For example, I have a bill that the president, me, really wants, and it is to create my own private army. And I need to get the votes for this bill. So I tell them stuff like, I'm going to veto your legislation. You're not going to get jack unless you support my bill. Uh -huh. By the end of the three days of this thing, I always get my bill through. And then at the <laughs> end, it's like, you did what? You let the president bully you into his own private army? And some of them are ashamed and some are like, well, I had to do that to get things done. So it's a great psychological piece too, Interesting. for the ones that will you know, care to look at right. themselves a little bit. To see bit. how a dictatorship or a fascist yeah, or government actually just, you know, starts. Even with... something normal, how a bill works, where there's probably all sorts of deals and bullying. Uh -huh. I make deals with them and say, yes, I'll, I'll pass your thing. I'm not just me. Right. I'll pass your thing if you pass my thing. So I do log rolling and all this sort of stuff. So uh -huh. it's democracy at its and best, the, worst, are whatever. Are students also dealing with each other? Yes. So they can make deals with each other. And occasionally they try to oppose me. If they're smart, they get together. And I figure if we get everybody just about to uh -huh. oppose Spinrad, we can take control. And that, once, in a while, well, once in a while it happens. Yeah. Not very often. Usually I onto it. Occasionally they will they'll be able to do that. So uh -huh. that sort of way of teaching to me is also a lot of fun. I'm not going to do that the whole year, but I'll do that for half a week or something like that. And I remember it every year and they remember it too. They usually have a good time with it. And we do a lot of talking about it and writing about it afterwards. So, you know, why did he do this and how was he able to get this through? And so uh -huh. they learn a little more about the process. Nice. So I like drama. I like simulations. Those are the things that I just look forward to doing all the time. I like lecturing a lot too because I'm a performer. Uh -huh. I like trying to be like my father. And I think that's a big piece of teaching. Yeah. Is I definitely have the philosophy that teachers are performing. Yeah. 900 shows a year. That's right. 180 days, five yeah. shows, yeah. five shows a day. So you have to be um, up. So I'm a big believer in physical fitness and taking care of yourself and doing the other things. So, you know, I'm an old man now, but I think I'm still pretty physically fit. I'm not as good as you with running, but I went for a run this morning. Nice. When I can, I go to the gym. I try to do something every day. Uh -huh. I don't care if it's just a walk, you know, to the store and back. I try to do something. And that comes out because I'm in front of them and I'm jumping around. Sometimes to get their attention, I'll just drop down and, and give them 50 push-ups. <laughs> counting them out loud. That you don't think I can do this. Right. I'm an old guy. It's like, all right, now you do it. I can't do that spin around. That's right. So, you know, every trick technique because lecture is inherently not as interesting as these other things. Uh -huh. So I have to really perform a lot to keep the lectures happening. Sometimes yeah. that will be peppering them with questions. Uh -huh. So it's not just on me, it's going to be on them too. You better right, be listening because right. I'm going to ask you questions about this later. Uh, but since that, especially for the AP Gov and 
AP Econ, you have to do some direct instruction in those classes. I don't think there's any other way, really, because right. I haven't found. I think, I mean, pretty much successful. every class requires some level of direct instruction. Yeah. It's just finding the right balance yeah. between yeah. the student-driven simulation stuff, the direct instruction, the hands-on work, the mm -hmm. project work, mm -hmm. and finding that right balance of what keeps students engaged while still getting them all the content that they need to get uh, for that that class. And I think it's also good not to do things the same way all the time. Uh -huh. I think the kids do better if they're, oh, what's he going to do today? Uh -huh. you know, what is he going to joke about? No, it's just a, a little more on their toes. Yeah. It's a good thing. I mean, similarly, if you're going to the same show 180 times in a row, it'll get pretty boring. Yes. So you got to make it right. uh, 180 different performances right. with something unique that keeps you coming back wanting more. Right. And so I'm unafraid to tell jokes. Sometimes I'm pretty good. Sometimes I'm terrible. Depends on today. I was very good. So I, I often <laughs> do rhymes with their names. Oh. So, you know, I had, I had, I had a great pun with a kid today. Okay. Uh, and it's just like half the class laughs. Like, yes, that's a winner. Got him. <laughs> so, you know, again, that's, you know, stuff that makes it fun. And that goes on more on the warmth part if I want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you one thing that teachers should look at, yeah. uh, and I found myself doing this, is we tend to be warmer, more jokes, more fun, in our higher level classes where yep. the kids are better. And it's much harder to be that way in the low level classes. Okay. There's something in me, and I'm still working on this, that makes it in the low level classes, I'm much more structured, I don't give them near as much freedom, and uh, I'm colder. Yeah. And I would like to reverse that some. It's just instinctively it's hard to do. Have you found, though I think it's tougher to maintain control yes. in the lower level classes. Which is probably like why fresh, I tend Freshman to and sophomore yeah. intro level courses, right. it's easier to get off track and then to have a tougher time bringing it back onto track. Sophomore if world make, history is the you, hardest class to teach, period. If you make a misstep, yes. it's going to cost you more. That's right. And um, if you make a joke, they won't let the joke go. The joke will still be going 10 minutes later, and I'll be pulling what's left of my hair out. Right. So it's just it's harder to do. So I'm still figuring that out, and our job never stops as far as trying to figure out the best way. It's, it's what I can think about on my ride home or ride there. It's like, all right, what am I going to do that's going to keep it a little warmer than I was, it was not warm enough last time, but still can get the work done. Right. And that's the tough part. And, yeah. and so if you figure out how to find that right balance, yeah, I'll let you I know. Agree. Like it's, <laughs> it's so important yeah. to stay uh, playful and warm mm -hmm. with especially struggling students. Right. Um, not that our standard world history class is struggling students, but with, you know, intro level courses. Um, no, I but see it even with seniors. Seniors are all the same age, and yet my AP, I'm much more fun. Yeah. And uh, and I would like to be able to fix that. Right. Um, well, when you find that magic bullet, please let me know. <laughs> I will. I'm working on I would on love that. to pull that, to, that yeah. too. Yeah. Awesome. Fun thing about teaching is we've solved some problems, and we've still got a lot still to go. And with that, Mike Spinrad, social studies teacher at San Marin High School, thank you so much for joining us. Nick Williams, my pleasure. Always.